On this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, I discuss a magician who Houdini called the most versatile magician who ever lived. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 14. And I'd like to dedicate today's episode to the memory of my friend, Joe Pecor. Uh, Joe was a, a friend of mine that I met through the Magic Club in, uh, in Northern Virginia, and a super nice guy, very friendly, very open and, and giving, and... Uh, I didn't know it when I first met him, but he was apparently into magic history as well. And Joe uh, helped me early on with the Magic Detective blog that I have, themagicdetective.com blog. Joe would, I'd tell him what I was researching, and he'd go, oh, let me see if I can find anything. And the next thing I know, he'd come up with pages and pages of documentation on the topic that I was covering. And I think the reason was, is Joe behind the scenes was actually working on Ask Alexander in the early days. And Joe also worked on Magicpedia for Genie Magazine. So Joe was one of these behind the scenes kind of guys. He was a computer programmer by trade, very giving individual, very friendly individual. He, he sent me a, a text one day and he said, hey, there's this group looking for somebody to do a Houdini act. Why don't you get in touch with them? And sure enough, I did. And I ended up doing several gigs for them. Good pay and great publicity. And it was wonderful. And actually, Joe came out to the very first one that I did. My thoughts are with his family. This episode is for Joe. Today's subject is a magician named Robert Heller. He was a Victorian era magician. And one of my favorite magicians that I've ever researched. And, and I, the reason he became so fascinating and a favorite so quickly was because the historical record that's out there is not entirely accurate. Uh, it has a lot of holes in it. Uh, just I'll, I'll give you the, the, the brief uh, version. Uh, most of the history say he was born in England. He came to America to perform. Uh, he was a terrible failure. He eventually found some success, and then he stopped performing and retired to Washington, D.C., and then he died. And that's basically what a lot of the histories say, and it's wrong. It's mostly wrong. Outside of the fact he was born in England, there's just too many holes in the story. So uh, I began to uh, look it up a few years ago and slowly uncovered the life story of Robert Heller. So that's what you're going to hear today. It's basically my attempt to set the record straight. Uh, to begin with, he was born William Henry Ridout Palmer. That was his real name in Faversham, Kent, England on August 10th, 1829. As a boy, he showed interest in music and a big talent for it. His father, by the way, was Henry Palmer, and he was a professor of music in Canterbury. And in addition, his father was also the leader of the orchestra at the Canterbury Catch Club. But he was not the organist at the famed Canterbury Cathedral, as is claimed in numerous magic periodicals. 
Young William Henry Palmer began to play the piano at age six. He attended King's School in Canterbury. At 14, he won a scholarship to the prestigious Royal Academy of Music in London. And by all accounts, it looks like he was going to follow a path in music for his life's work. But something, or actually maybe I should say someone, got in the way. In 1848, that someone was Robert Houdin. Uh, the great French magician decided to come to England. Uh, Robert Houdin was performing at St. James Theatre, and in the audience one day was young William Palmer. Palmer was mesmerized by the magic of Robert Houdin, so much so that his passion for music shifted to conjuring. And according to author Henry Ridgely Evans, Palmer purchased his magic props uh, soon thereafter from a London magic dealer and even took lessons in sleight of hand from the owner of the shop. After three years of study in the conjuring arts, Palmer chose a new name to go by. He took the first name, Robert. Uh, he got that from Robert Houdin. And the last name came from a famed Austrian pianist, Stephen Heller. So the two names, Robert Heller, actually encapsulated his two passions in life, magic and music. The newly dubbed Robert Heller's first performance was at the Strand Theatre in London. Heller's show was a copy of the Robert Houdin show, almost trick for trick. But it was successful. I guess it's because Robert Houdin's magic was successful, and thus, so was Robert Heller's. He eventually took the show to the provinces uh, throughout England, and afterwards decided to try his sights on America. In 1852, Heller left port in Liverpool and set sail for America. He arrived on September 6th, 1852, and it's at this point that many magic histories totally get things wrong. Some claim he was a big failure right off the bat. Others say he met with a little success. It appears coming off the boat, he headed straight to Albany, New York for performances at a place called Van Vechten Hall. And he didn't actually perform in New York City until November 25th, where he presented a piano concert, not magic. But he was preparing for a big magic opening. He was going to put together his own venue, basically. It was called Heller's Saloon of Wonders. He rented a space at 539 Broadway. Incidentally, uh, P.T. Barnum would set up in that exact same location sometime later with his second American museum, the first one having burnt down, and eventually the second one would burn down as well. Um, Heller's Saloon of Wonders was open for five months and presented in that time 200 performances. Robert Heller presented his magic with a heavy French accent and a dark wig. And after the run, he would permanently ditch the wigs and permanently ditch, ditch the French accent as well. One of the features of his show was his second sight routine. Uh, Heller may have been one of the first, if not the first, to present a mind-reading act in America. Uh, once the run of uh, the Saloon of Wonders was over, Heller took the show on the road. He went to the Walnut Theater in Philadelphia, and the Walnut uh, Theater is the oldest theater in America that is still active. He was very popular there. He took the show to a couple other locations, and then... He uh, kind of stops the, his magic 
music-related uh, gigs, and he's persuaded to join up with a group called the Germania Musical Society. Because he's a, a concert pianist, he joins this group. He presents a number of concerts with them in Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and then Washington. This is now 1854, and the magic histories say that Robert Heller was not very successful during this time, so he retired from magic. One article speculated that he lost his equipment in a fire, and that was the cause of his retirement. Uh, But actually, that's not the cause at all. I discovered something that spells it all out. It was a letter that Heller wrote to a Mrs. Blanchard of Portland, Maine. I'm going to read some of the letter to you now. Sometime since I invested the whole of my earnings with the Germania Musical Society in a building speculation and being the last wreck of my gains in this country. For further safety, I put $1,100 in the hands of a man in whom I had every confidence. What then is my situation? I learn that the villain has gone off to England or Europe somewhere, leaving creditors to make the best of it. How cruelly I am beaten down. I am now thinking of returning to England, for I have been so shamefully robbed on all sides by the Yankees that I am afraid of them. But still is hope for two or three of those who have expressed good feelings towards me that maybe you would help me. Yourself and John Goddard are among them. And that's how the letter goes. So basically, between the building speculation with the Germania Musical Society and this fellow that he entrusted money to, um, essentially, Robert Heller ended the whole affair with nothing. They, he was ripped off. Now, whether the building speculation was a ripoff as well or just a poor investment, I don't know. But the, uh, the gentleman he entrusted money to clearly ripped him off. And he was obviously very upset about it. And he ended up in Washington, D.C., one, uh, one of the last places they were to perform. Fortunately for him, he already has a reputation as a concert pianist, so the music teacher works out well. Uh, He changes his name back, though, to William Henry Palmer while he's in Washington, D.C., and I believe this is uh, to hide from creditors, basically, because they're trying to track down Robert Heller, but he's William Henry Palmer, and uh, he doesn't owe them anything. According to the D.C. Registry, Robert Heller is listed as a professor of music, He was also an organist at the Church of the Epiphany, which is still there today. Uh, One of the places he lived while in Washington was on 13th Street, Northwest, which uh, his his house where he lived is actually now the location of where the Warner Theater is. So it's almost a fitting tribute to this fine theatrical performer from the 19th century that they built a theater upon the place he once lived. Uh, In regards to his music, uh, the very first performance, this is going back to the Germania Musical Society, the very first performance of the uh, Beethoven Concerto No. 4 in G Major of Piano and Orchestra, Opus 58, was given on February 4th, 1854, at the Boston Odeon by Robert Heller and uh, Carl Bergman, who was conducting the the orchestra. This, of course, is prior to coming to Washington, D.C. Heller, by the way, was also, uh, he also write, wrote quite a bit of music, and in the Library of Congress, they have a number of his, uh, the sheet music from that he wrote. In 1854, he wrote a piece called The Ripple Waltz, 
1854 also, he wrote a piece called The Wayside Flowers. In 1855, he wrote The President's Mounted Guard Quick Step. And then in 1857, he publishes another piece of music, but this time he publishes it under his other name, William Henry Palmer. And that one is The Souvenir of Winter. Now, of course, as I mentioned, while in D.C., he's giving music lessons and he's giving lessons to the the wealthy class that's in, in the district. And it's there that he meets his future wife, who was Anna Marie Kirchhofer. Uh, they eventually get married and they have three children. In 1861, William Henry Palmer once again becomes Robert Heller. The desire to do magic is getting the best of him. And he meets a man named Edward P. Hingston. This man was the manager of Artemis Ward and others. And Ward, by the way, is considered by many to be the very first stand-up comic. Uh, Ward was also a personal favorite of none other than Abraham Lincoln. Or Hingston uh, tells Heller to lighten up his act. And he also tells him to include the music. Prior to this, Heller was, his magic and his music were always separate. The music was concerts and the magic was something different. Now he's combining them together into one cohesive uh, program. In 1864, Heller opens on Broadway in a show he called the Salle Diabo Pew. And I don't even know if I pronounced that right. It's magic, Martha, in, in music. He used this uh, clever bit of marketing, uh, which was a, a flyer which read, Shakespeare wrote well. Dickens wrote weller. Anderson was, but the greatest was Heller. Now, if I could just take that apart for you. Of course, Shakespeare, we know who Shakespeare was. So it starts with Shakespeare wrote well. Dickens wrote weller. And what he's referring to here. Uh, Weller was a character that uh, Dickens had created from the Pickwick Papers that uh, turned out to be the uh, the thing that put Charles Dickens on the map. Anderson was, and it's blank, and I believe that is actually hell to rhyme with well earlier. And uh, then the last line is the greatest was Heller. So Shakespeare wrote well, Dickens wrote Weller. Anderson was, but the greatest was Heller. It's a fun little bit of uh, rhyming. Uh, poetry that uh, helped to bring people in to see his shows. Another a genius bit of marketing were flyers that <laughs> these were flyers that just simply said, go to Heller's. And but the way that it was written, go to was written normally. Heller's was written uh, capital H, capital E, capital L, capital L, and then lowercase ERS. So it kind of, if at first glance, it looked like go to hell, but it said go to hellers. And these were often left at churches of all places. And just to show you, uh, unlike today where there would be all sorts of uh, <laughs> uh, hell to pay, no pun intended, um, for doing such a thing, back then the clergymen would actually find these things and try to find out exactly what was going on, and they would uh, attend one of Heller's shows and find out that it was nothing devilish whatsoever. It was actually quite uh, quite a delight, and they would encourage their, uh, their congregations to attend Heller's performances. Heller's new show, by the way, was a hit. The music would often be singled out in newspaper articles, but the thing that was most impressive to people 
was the Second Sight Mind Reading Act. And, and it's very likely that Robert Heller was the first to bring mind reading to America. In 1867, Heller takes the show to the Great Exposition uh, in Paris. He brings his entire family, by the way. They will remain in Paris. His kids will go to school there while Heller tours. In 1868, he goes to London to the Polygraphic Hall, and it's here that he adds Haiti Heller to the show. And most magic histories uh, list her as his sister, but she is actually no relation. And if you recall from a previous podcast on Harry Keller that I did, I mentioned that uh, while in London, Harry Keller runs into Haiti Heller, and they begin to discuss the whole Second Sight thing. She actually teaches him some techniques that she uses in the show, and then uh, he teaches those to Eva Keller, his wife, and they incorporate uh, these techniques into the Harry Keller show. Uh, it's At this point, though, Robert Heller has long been gone. There's a really funny story that uh, I, I discovered that during one of their shows, after the musical portion of the show, uh, Haiti and Robert Heller get into a bit of an argument backstage. Robert comes out and basically Haiti refuses to come out and he says, he comes out and he says, ladies and gentlemen, this is the part of the show where Miss Haiti Heller comes out, except tonight she refuses to do so. Let's wait and see. And then he quietly <laughs> takes his seat on the couch and begins to twirl his thumbs without speaking a word. And a few minutes later, a very red-hot Haiti comes storming out, and Heller looks at her and he says, Ah, I thought so. And the show continued. <laughs> While in Europe, he decides to embark on a world tour which includes Egypt, Australia, the Orient, and much more. This continues until about 1873, and then for the next three years after that, he works mainly in the British Isles. In 1877, he returns to the United States, and according to the New York Clipper newspaper, he comes back with 49 tons of paraphernalia, which I'm not even sure if it's possible to have 49 tons of paraphernalia on a boat, but um, that's what they said. Sounds like uh, typical magicians exaggerating. Uh, he leased uh, the Globe Theater in New York and again wins over the New York audiences, this time with a, a show he called Heller's Wonder Theater. Uh, he played San Francisco in the summer of 1877 and then goes back to England one more time for a, uh, a brief break. In September, he is back in Boston and then December he's back in New York for what would be his final performance or his final appearance there. In May 1878, Heller leaves New York for Europe. While in Europe, he visits his family in Paris. His children hardly recognize their father, who has been touring for many years. Whatever difficulties existed are patched up with the family, and he decides that it's time to permanently reunite everyone uh, and start a new home in England. Once his, this is once his American tour is complete. That's the plan, at least. So now we get to September of 1878. Heller is back in America, and he opens up at the Broad Street Theater in Philadelphia. He's there for about four weeks and moves to Baltimore for a month in October of 1878. On November 4th, 1878, Heller opens at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., and he plays to packed houses uh, because newspapers are announcing it as Heller's final appearance in Washington. 
one of the things Heller does in his final tour is he's changing the show very often. It's 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 as if he's giving the American people one last chance to see all his offerings before he moves to uh, to England. And remember, he used to live in Washington D.C., so he had a really big fan base there. So uh, it made it a little easier for him to uh, fill seats. Now, while all this was going on, there was uh, something that I refer to as the Heller slander. An article appeared in the Cincinnati Inquirer a few days before Heller arrived back in Washington, D.C., and the article mentioned that an unnamed person from D.C. who made the claim that Heller had abandoned his wife and children and she died of a broken heart. Other papers across the country picked up the article and and it's, it found its way all the way to Washington. The National Republican newspaper held an interview with Heller's father-in-law, Mr. Kikoffer, and he was glad to have a chance to speak out. Mr. Kikoffer is outraged or was outraged that his son-in-law and daughter's personal life was being slandered by an anonymous person in the press. He says that Keller's wife was not dead, uh, but in fact living quite well in Paris, supported by her husband. Uh, Mr. Kikoffer relates how he did not initially understand Heller's desire to go back to magic, but he eventually came to see the light. He says that a man with Heller's passion had to follow his heart. To further prove that he had no hard feelings with his son-in-law, he points out that he and Heller were having dinner that very day in Washington. And after the the controversy dies a quick death following this, and Heller plays to huge crowds, as I mentioned before. Heller arrives in Philadelphia on Saturday, November 24th. And while uh, walking with his business manager to the theater, Heller felt a, a twinge in his arm several times on the short journey from the hotel to the theater. And he had to stop because of this illness. He was already suffering from a cold he picked up in Washington, and he was he was showing so, showing signs of this being maybe something more, maybe being serious. On November 26, 1978, Robert Heller, along with Haiti Heller, opened at Concert Hall in Philadelphia, and his cold is even worse now. And it's noticeable to the audience. And he presents the first part of the show, the section with the varied magic effects with no, with no problems. Uh, but he is so ill that he has to lay down for 30 minutes before continuing. He mentions to the audience that both he and Miss Heller are both sick with colds. I found two different uh, differing accounts of how the show ended. One newspaper account says Heller wrapped up the show uh, early with the performance of The Last Rose of Summer. Uh, he played the piece with such passion, it was as if he never played it before. The other account comes from a gentleman named Kit Clark who saw he- Heller hours before he died. He said Heller and Haiti finished the show with the second sight routine. Either way, it would be Heller's final performance number. When Heller finished playing, he dismissed the audience, and both he and Haiti uh, went straight to the Continental Hotel. He finally agreed to see a doctor on Tuesday morning. The doctor said he had a slight congestion of the lungs, but the truth, the reality, was, was much worse. He actually intended to perform, Heller did, on Tuesday evening, but as the day progressed, he admitted he was in no condition to do so. Heller's illness got worse as the evening dragged on. 
A quote from Kit Clark says, Just after 12 o'clock midnight, he had a severe attack of vomiting, lasting but a few moments, but when it ceased, he raised himself up, gave one gasp, and falling back upon a pillow, Robert Heller was dead. On November 28th, the Public Ledger newspaper made the announcement that Robert Heller had died. There would be no return engagement. At the time, the doctor said he died from organic exhaustion. We now believe, though, that uh, Heller probably died from a case of double pneumonia. Heller's death was such a shock to Washington, D.C. that his obituary appeared on the front page of the November 30th, 1878 edition of the National Republican newspaper. Worse yet, across the Atlantic Ocean, his wife and three children were making preparations for his return so that they all could once again be a family together. And he was buried by the time the news reached his family in Europe. The funeral for William Henry Palmer, Robert Heller, took place at St. Stephen's Protestant Episcopal Church in Philadelphia on November 29, 1878. And it was a small affair. A few show business people attended, along with his brother-in-law, Haiti, uh, and Heller's electrician and secret confidant, uh, who had been with him for years, E.J. Dale. William Henry Palmer, Robert Heller, was buried in Mount Moriah Cemetery in Philadelphia. He's in plot 189, section 135, and his gravestone actually has both names, William Henry Palmer and Robert Heller listed on it. Robert Heller's estate was worth about $350,000 in 1878, so today that would be worth millions of dollars. In his will, he made arrangements for money to be left to his wife, uh, to his children, to his brother, uh, to Haiti Heller, and also um, his sister, who uh, he left uh, one clock of her choosing. Obviously, she must have received something else as well. Um, originally, he, he stipulated that all his props and magic equipment be destroyed upon his death. But apparently on his deathbed, he had a change of heart on that one and decided to have them all sent to Hearts, the magic dealer, for him to sell. Now, if that's 49 tons of paraphernalia, um, wow. Hearts would have got quite a... Uh, Quite a bit of stuff. Now, I've heard from other sources that uh, Heller's equipment actually was stuck in a warehouse because he had um, outstanding bills, and there was quite a bit of fighting over uh, over it. And um, today, we don't know where Robert Heller's stuff is, but but I do know where some of the things ended up. Um, actually, I know where one of the things ended up, um, and that is the the chair or the couch that was used in the second sight routine that he and Haiti Heller performed because it just so happens that couch turns up at Martinka's in, um, in New York city. And there's a photo of it in uh, a book by uh, Henry Ridgely Evans. It's got a picture of Robert Heller's magic sofa. So obviously I guess hearts must've gotten some of the equipment and dispersed it out to other magicians and magic dealers and, Unfortunately, this is a time period when people weren't really um, uh, collectors, I guess. Uh, although, uh, believe it or not, the couch apparently um, 
did go to somebody that did like to collect, and that was Joe Dunninger. Joe Dunninger picked up the couch, and what happened to it after Joe Dunninger got it is anybody's guess. I have a feeling it um, is probably lost at this point in time. Now, you might be wondering, what kind of magic did Robert Heller do? Now, I mentioned earlier that he did, his act was basically a duplicate of Robert Houdin's, which is kind of uh, accurate. At least that was his, his initial, um, the initial type of show that he did. But over time, he began to change things. One of his favorite routines was the Magical Punch Bowl, which was a version of like the Think a Drink or the Inexhaustible Bottle. And I think he also did Inexhaustible Bottle from time to time. So he must have switched those in and out. Um, he did a spirit cabinet, which is, uh, I guess you, you got to figure that's, um, he's popular at the time where spiritualism is becoming popular and a lot of magicians are doing spirit effects. So, uh, Heller adds that to the show as well. He also had some of the Robert Houdin stuff, like he had a, a version of the, um, pastry chef of the Palais Royale, which I'm sure he didn't call it that, but uh, it was an unusual automaton-like thing. It, it basically looked like a miniature pastry chef building, and uh, there were little automaton figures in there moving around, doing the, the cooking and the kneading of the bread and what have you, and somebody from the audience would be asked uh, to put in an order. And he would speak to the chef, a mechanical chef. And moments later, the chef would come out with a little tray with a little tiny miniature version of whatever the pastry was. So it's a pretty clever, um, pretty clever piece. Thanks to old uh, Harry Keller, Robert Heller gets to do the flying cage or the vanishing bird cage. You know, Robert Heller had a very interesting uh, version of the vanishing bird cage. By the way, he purchased his cage from uh, the magic dealer Charles Devere only a short time after Harry Keller had purchased his. Um, <clears throat> so here's Robert Heller's routine. Uh, he didn't go the same route as many of the others did. He began by producing feathered bouquets out of a foulard. Uh, these bouquets were also darts, which he would toss down and stick to the stage floor. And a canary was produced from one of these uh, feathered bouquets. And he would hand the, uh, the canary to an assistant to hold onto while uh, Keller walked backstage to retrieve the cage. And as Heller walked on stage with the cage, the assistant who had been holding the bird in their cupped hands opens their hand to show the bird has vanished. Heller then says, well, if there's no bird, we won't need the cage, and instantly makes the cage disappear. Another effect in Heller's show was something he called the Magnificent Peacock, which was a uh, really realistic-looking automaton peacock, which could find chosen cards. It was the, uh, the precursor to the, the uh, much, 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 much later card duck, I guess. Um, another uh, automaton he had in the show was the Harlequin, um, and there's a wonderful photo. You probably can find it online. I think it's on my blog, themagicdetective.com, uh, a, a photo of Heller standing next to his Harlequin automaton, which is really cool. Um, he did a number of card effects in the show, and of course the second sight routine, which uh, became kind of the signature for him. And if you're wondering... 
about Haiti Heller. Well, it turns out that after Robert Heller died, Haiti Heller found herself another partner and continued to perform. Um, they apparently were no relation whatsoever, uh, but they had a good thing and um, a very popular piece that many, many performers have uh, duplicated using uh, different methods over the years. It's a second sight is still a popular effect, even in the 21st century. Um, he had an effect called Cupid and the Roses. I'm not exactly sure what that, that could be any number of different things. Uh, his punch bowl, he actually called that Lucifer's punch bowl. And, um, and according to some, um, drawings that were used to advertise his show, he has a spirit dial in there as well, as well as some other unusual automaton that I'm not hundred percent um, familiar with, but Robert Heller was an amazing character from the 19th century. And unfortunately, like, uh, like Morrow before him, he died uh, way too early. If you're wondering what initially got my interest in Robert Heller to begin with, it was actually Houdini. There's a picture of Houdini standing next to Robert Heller's grave. Apparently, old uh, Houdini, when he was on tour, whether it was in the States or overseas, he would often seek out the graves of dead magicians. And he was, uh, he rediscovered basically Robert Heller's grave. And there's uh, several photos of Houdini standing next to Heller's grave. And I saw these and I, I one day and I was like, well, who is Robert Heller? I, I'm familiar with most of the magicians where Houdini's standing next to their grave, but Robert Heller, I didn't know who he was. And that began the grand search to discover who he was. And as I mentioned earlier, my friend Joe Pecor got on, on board and um, he began to help me research Heller as well. An interesting fact, over the years since I first published those first articles about Robert Heller, I have been contacted by a number of people uh, about Heller's life, some of them from the music world, music historians that were interested in Heller because of his music contributions. I've also been contacted by relatives, family members that were related to Heller. And one family member said something that I found really uh, interesting. He said that it was his understanding that Heller didn't leave any money to the family, which I had never heard that before. And who knows, maybe that could be true. It could be, even though he had a will, it, maybe uh, none of the money was distributed. Maybe he was taken by the Yankees once again. That would be the ultimate, uh, the ultimate embarrassment. And finally, I have to mention that on February 23rd, 2019, there is a Potter and Potter auction coming up. And in this Potter and Potter auction, there are a number of Robert Heller items. This is the magic collection of Jim Rollins. And apparently Jim was the guy who purchased that letter that I read a little bit of uh, earlier in the podcast that uh, where Heller describes uh, what happened to him with the Germania Musical Society. And... Um, Apparently Jim had it. Now, how did I find out about it? Uh, it was actually printed online. There was um, there was a, a website called, I forget the name of it now. It was like uh, 
auction prices revealed or something. And it had a transcript of the letter and I was doing searches on Robert Heller every day and I came across this. So I didn't have the actual letter in my hand, but I had the, basically all the, what was within the letter. And that's how I found out about it. But the actual letter is in the upcoming auction. And there's another piece in the auction, which kind of makes me sad. Uh, it is Robert Heller's top hat. And I say that makes me sad because I was the first one contacted about Robert Heller's top hat. The family uh, members uh, had it still a few years back, and uh, they contacted me first because they went online, and the only person who had written about Robert Heller in 70 years was me, apparently. I don't think that's exactly true, but it was the only thing online. And so they found my articles and they contacted me asking me about the value of the hat. And they were thinking like $10,000 or something like that. And I said, I don't think it's worth quite that much money. It's probably going to be a little bit less than that. And they, um, they wanted to believe the high end. They wanted to believe, no, it's worth $10,000. So they listed it on eBay of all things, and they listed it for $2,000. And uh, I saw it, and there were no bidders, and no bidders, and no bidders, and no bidders. And I thought, yeah, well, maybe you asked for too much. And uh, and I was going to bid on it at $2,000. I was ready to bid uh, there towards the very end, and I guess Jim Rollins must have bid uh, before me. And he won the hat. And I was like, oh, that would have been just for me, that would have been the ultimate thing to have Robert Heller's top hat. I just thought, oh, man, I would love to have this, especially after all the research that I did on Heller. Well, it's in the auction also, and it's uh, they're expecting it to get a lot more than $2,000. So perhaps the family was right initially. We'll see how much that top hat goes for. But um Hey, if there's anybody out there super generous and you think that I I deserve the top hat and you want to buy a gift for the magic detective, hey, I won't turn it away. But uh, hey, just throwing that out for anybody that generous. But I understand. Um, whoever gets it, I hope it gets a, to a great new home because I know Jim took great care of it as well. So, uh, and I think there's a couple other Heller items in the upcoming Potter and Potter auction. So please check those out. And, um, that's going to be pretty cool because their Heller items don't come up very often. So that is episode 14, my friends of the magic detective podcast. I hope as usual, you've enjoyed the podcast. If you have, please like the podcast. That's the little heart button that's on your, uh, device, just hit that or, uh, or leave a comment. Please leave a comment if you enjoyed the podcast. If for whatever reason you didn't enjoy the podcast, send me an email and uh, you can email me at info at carnegiemagic.com and just send me an email and go, you know what? You blabber on too much or I don't like this history stuff or why don't you talk about sports or I whatever, you know, or you could say complimentary things there too because I would appreciate that. And also, uh, please follow the podcast or subscribe, either one of those. That would be awesome as well. We just recently broke a 1,000 downloads of the podcast, which I'm very excited about. That was the, the previous podcast on Doug Henning took us over to the 1,000 
mark. So that's really great. And now we're shooting for the 5,000 download mark, which, you know, it's going to take a little while, but eh, by summer we should be there, I guess. Maybe, maybe sooner. Next. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Forgot to mention the next podcast is going to be about a female magician. Yes. And with any luck, I have a, a female um, magician who is going to be uh, narrating that podcast. With any luck, I hope that happens. So once again, Dean Carnegie, Magic Detective, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Magic Detective Podcast. <laughs>